The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. <laughs> wow. <laughs> There's a lot, lot that goes on here. A little, little bit lower. So, uh, yeah, a little bit lower. It's kind of... Let's see, is that... Uh, that, how's that for you? People here, it's a little, little bit echo still, maybe a little bit lower. Let's, let's see, is that, is that still worker people? Great, thank you. Yeah, it's quite impressive uh, how, over, we've been here you know, 12 years in this building and, and I would say that we weren't very aggressive about building our programs. But after 12 years of slowly things growing and developing, now the place is pretty much scheduled, you know. We're actually, the challenge now is we have things people want to do here or things we want to do that we don't have really space to do anymore. So that's nice to run into our natural limits. Um, so... So today's talk, uh, I'd like to uh, address the theme of Buddhism and the environment. And the reason for that is that uh, a little over a year ago, uh, at a meeting of American Vipassana teachers, actually global teachers of this insight meditation practice, they decided that uh, to celebrate Earth Care Week, the first week of October every year. And uh, this is the week. And uh, the idea is that the collective recognition and celebration and focus on this theme is more powerful than, you know, just people doing it individually here and there. And so um, around about in different communities, uh, there is going to be some focus on this topic. And one of the nice things is that um, there is going to be a series of five days of talks given by uh, some prominent Buddhist teachers on the topic of environment that's going to be posted online, an online conference that starts today. And uh, Jack Cornfield and Tara Brock and other people. And you could um, uh, listen to that uh, by going, there's a website called One Earth, uh, One, One Earth Sangha, oneearthsangha.org. And uh, they're posting these uh, talks. And so uh, in my contribution to this uh, week, I'd like to get to Sunday here, like give a talk on Buddhism and the environment. And I'd like to begin um, by saying that uh, probably when the uh, 21st century is finished and people tell stories about it, one of the great stories will be, I hope one of the great stories will be the environment. Um, and, and why I say I hope it's one of the great stories is that great stories uh, tend to have good outcomes. Uh, usually uh, things that happen uh, things that happen really badly and end up badly don't become great stories we tend to, uh, humans kind of forget about them to some degree and then we have to kind of stretch ourselves to remember some of them that uh, went on um, and uh, you know it's like we you know Columbus Day we celebrate Columbus right what a great thing for this guy to these three little boats sail across the Atlantic and you know courageously discover little islands in the Caribbean. Wow, we celebrate that. And, and not the genocide that followed. 
you know, it's, we don't, you know, that's kind of, we have to kind of re- remember those kinds of things. So I hope that uh, one of the great stories of the 21st century is uh, our relationship to the environment. And it, I hope it's a story of uh, great heroicism and sacrifice and dedication uh, to overcome tremendous challenges and uh, difficulties. And probably be, there'll be great movies that produced of the great challenges and, and how there were individuals or societies or the whole globe somehow gathered together to do something and address this issue. Um, there's a, a Buddhist fable, which is similar to a fable in other cultures. This one uh, concerns a uh, poor farmers who uh, somehow ended up with a golden swan. And all, all the feathers of the swan were golden, pure gold. And so uh, they, these poor farmers couldn't believe their good luck and they, would, they would pluck one feather every once in a while and sell it and have enough money to get by and happily get by on. And then uh, one of the f- uh, members of the family was uh, kind of greedy. So when everyone else was gone one day, uh, plucked all the feathers out. And, um, and then <coughs> uh, what came back, what grew back on the swan were ordinary swan feathers. And that was the end of the golden feathers. <coughs> so it's kind of like the golden egg story. The goose with the golden egg. So it's possible to get all this uh, <coughs> wealth, benefit, resources from uh, the environment and it can sustain us for a long time and then we can uh, take too much of it and then it gets destroyed and never comes back. And I, I, I got the very vivid <coughs> experience of this. Uh, I grew up, uh, half, of my, half of my upbringing was in, on the Mediterranean coast in Italy and uh, parts of the coastline there going down Yugosla- old Yugoslavia and going down to Greece all these beautiful islands. And you know, we used to go down there sometimes and see how beautiful these islands were. And they were beautiful. <clears throat> but they were also, most of them were completely denuded. And they were beautiful because, like, you know, Yosemite and Half Dome is beautiful. All this rock. <laughs> it was all this rock. This, and, um, and it used to be forested. It used to be filled with soil. And uh, 2,000 years ago or so. <clears throat> and the Romans, in their uh, desire for wood and for farming and a variety of things, uh, clear-cut these islands and the soil eroded and, they, um, and nothing ever came back. And so, you know, it's a, kind of the, the golden feather story that if you, uh, so they, you know, it's okay to take one or two trees here and there, but to take all the trees and something doesn't ever come back again. And... Um, <clears throat> So and so, this is something that's deeply, deep, deeply understood principle in Buddhism: the idea of interconnectedness, the mutuality of how deeply connected uh, our human life is with the world around us and the world around us with itself. And in fact, Buddhism has a very strong attitude not to prioritize human beings as being better or superior or being the stewards or being somehow an elite group that uh, you know can do whatever they want with this earth but rather that uh, human beings uh, are integral to nature, part of nature, that we are nature. There's a, a clear continuity and, um, and a sense that we're all in it together kind of feeling. 
And uh, if we don't, an understanding this mutuality and interconnectedness comes a understanding that uh, it's important. This you know that's important to care for, to t- to reciprocate, and not to take all the feathers out of the <clears throat> the swan, not to take everything out of the environment, uh, uh, to take care. And um, so we know, you know, I think there's plenty of uh, knowledge now about environmental destruction in our planet and the consequences of it. Uh, Sometimes we don't uh, know so well how intimate it is to our lives because we think it happens far away. Uh, uh, And we think that nature is somehow outside of us. And, you know, Buddhism says it's inside of us ourselves as well. It's a continuity. And they say that there are something like 80,000 toxic chemicals which uh, are floating around the environment which could end up in us. And they say that uh, you take any human being on the globe right now and measure uh, the toxic chemicals in their blood and in their, in their, uh, in their flesh, uh, uh, there's usually probably going to be hundreds of chemicals there, you'll find. So what are you doing having hundreds of toxic chemicals floating around in your system or in your tissues? Um, it's not just out there, the problem is it comes in here. And maybe you think it's not going to affect you because you're immune. But there are people in the world who are not immune because the levels of which they experience are quite high. So we know a lot of these things. And, uh, and so humans w- look for how to, how to find our way with it, how to get support. And, and there's a tendency for some people to look towards religion. And so Buddhists sometimes like, well, Buddhism should have an answer, a response to this. And I believe part of the reason why people look towards religion is that uh, some people feel that science doesn't really have a lot of inherent values in it of care, ethics, and that uh, the place you look for ethics is, um, some people do, is uh, towards religion. That religion offers values or a worldview of how to look upon things. And this is what uh, got me, one of the things that really got me interested in Buddhism when I was 19 was um, I was going to college at UC Santa Barbara and the year before I started school there, there was a, a huge oil spill in the Channel Islands and the oil sp- uh, spilled up ac- on the shore there in Santa Barbara. And it was kind of a big deal back then. And so that was still fresh, fresh, fresh on the beach. <laughs> fresh in the air, fresh on the beach when I got there. And I remember walking on the beach and we would kind of have to be careful where we walked because of the blobs of oil that were there. And... Um, and uh, there was a wonderful book uh, uh, back then, kind of made a big splash called The Limits to Growth that had just been published. And it made a big impression that we couldn't just keep using the uh, natural resources. They weren't, they, were, they weren't unlimitedly available, but there was a limit. And at some point we'd run into those limits and we have to face and deal with that. So I studied, I studied uh, became an environmental studies major <clears throat> and uh, started looking into this and wanted to respond to this part of the world. And <clears throat> we have a lot of discussions in the dorms and in college with my friends about these kinds of issues. And after a while, the direction of the conversation was, well, we have to, it isn't just a matter of the science and whatever that <clears throat> to study, but we have to study politics and get involved in politics. So we took political science classes. And then after a while, well, it's not just politics. That's not going to be the answer. It has to be the worldview in which people see the whole world. Back then, you know, hippies and all that was uh, consciousness. 
we had to have, you know, change, consciousness had to change how we understood the world. And that's where I, I became interested in Buddhism because I felt that Buddhism had a, a worldview, understanding of how we can be in the world that spoke to this kind of issue that was much deeper than, that was really deep, like deeply embedded in our, our psyche, our consciousness. And I think that um, I still feel that way because I think whatever ecological crisis we have is also a psychological crisis. And uh, without uh, understanding the psychological role of human beings in the external world, I think that we're going to miss a really important opportunity. Because the opportunity is not just to take care of the environment, but also take care of what's inside of us, both the toxic chemicals, but also uh, our psychology. One of the, in, the, in the mythology of Buddhism, it says uh, there's a variety of different mythic stories that say that... Um, um, the way that uh, the whole world evolves and changes uh, is intimately tied to human psychology. That uh, if uh, uh, things used to be a lot better than mythology, and then at some point human beings started to be greedy, then they started to be jealous, then they started to pet punish each other, and then they started to do uh, have private property, and then they go through all this list of things. And as pe- as human beings started doing these things. Uh, the environment got worse and worse. And as it got worse, people got, were, became worse. And there was this kind of cycle until it got so b- really bad, it couldn't get any worse. And then um, some people started behaving better. Some people started to uh, do spiritual practice and clarify and purify their minds and live more ethically. And then uh, the world started getting better. Because in this myth, um, uh, it used to be worse <laughs> than it is now. I don't know if we're on the upswing or not in terms of the you know, big cosmic scale that Buddhism sometimes talks about. But The idea of the myth, though, is that uh, 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 human behavior has an impact, human psychology has an impact on the environment. And I think we, you know, with the tremendous number of human beings on this planet now and the tremendous use of resources, it's pretty obvious that that's the case now, that uh, our desires, our wishes, our greed has a tremendous impact and our hostility, war, has a huge impact on the environment in places where uh, oil fields are bombed and destroyed. And even you know, from the time of the first Iraq War, there was a lot, a lot of uh, pollution in um, in Iraq from uh, bombed oil fields. And that just keeps going on. I keep reading still to this day, the bombing oil fields down there, the part of the world, and all that oil is burning and spreading into the ground, and all these toxic chemicals are floating around in the bloodstream of Iraqis and Syrians. And uh, so hostility and anger and all these things are there in the background. And so if you look towards Buddhism for some kind of support or ideas about uh, what to do about the environment, then uh, Buddhism says you've got to look at your own heart and, uh, and uh, cultivate virtues in your own heart, cultivate goodness in your heart. And... Um, and without the cultivating of goodness and overcoming uh, kind of the afflictive emotions in our hearts, greed, hate, and delusion, um, there probably is not going to be much hope. So luckily Buddhism has a whole technology, a whole approach to look at uh, uh, our hearts and work on our hearts, purify our hearts, and have the best in our hearts come forward. And maybe that's one of Buddhism's great contributions, is uh, not its view about the environment so much, but rather that it has a has a very well-developed technology, techniques, emphasis on how to work on ourselves. 
Um, and one of, and there, there also there's a mutuality, just like there's a mutuality between our relationship with the environment and, <clears throat> and ourselves. There's a mutuality between our goodness and our, and our freedom, our happiness. And so what Buddhism says is that uh, if you develop your goodness, develop your virtues, that supports your ability to become psychologically free, to free yourselves from the, the contractions, the constrictions of the heart. And if you free yourself of the contractions of the heart, become free, uh, that, that supports the flowing of your goodness that comes out. And, um, and so you see that uh, in this uh, beautiful poem, I think it's beautiful, you know, the, the Metta Sutta, uh, which is a, a discourse, it's, people say it's the, it's the discourse on loving kindness, which is one of the great virtues of Buddhism. And, um, and uh, kind of one of the approaches to living life of Buddhism is to regularly ask, <clears throat> what's the uh, uh, kind thing to do? What's the, what's, what's the, how do I approach whatever situation I'm in with goodwill? How do I benefit this situation? Where's the metta? Where's the loving kindness? And, uh, and to bring, have that at the forefront. And uh, you might think that that's just kind of a do-good kind of attitude that you know, should be good. But uh, this metta sutta is really, what it's really about <clears throat> is, uh, is um, uh, reaching a state of peace. It says to reach a state of peace, <clears throat> uh, and then it describes what one should do. And I like, I think the idea in, in the original text is peace means, <clears throat> you know, some, your own psychological peace. But I think that uh, we could translate it to being uh, world peace. And I think in the next uh, decades, uh, we're not going to have much uh, peace in the world unless we really address the environmental issues of our time. <clears throat> and so, to reach the state of peace, one sti- skilled in the good should be capable and upright, straightforward and easy to speak to, gentle and not proud. And the ne- next one is kind of, int- I think, very important here. <clears throat> Contented and easily supported. Are you contented and easily supported? Um, you know, or you're discontented and you want more, and your Tesla, and <laughs> you know, or the latest iPhone, and you know, just you know, all consumer goods, right? And, uh, they say that uh, consumer culture does not like contented people, and I and I don't, and I don't know if it's true, uh, but uh, I've been told that at some point in Thailand the government forbade uh, Buddhist teachers to teach about contentment because they considered it to be uh, not healthy for the economy. (laughs) So it's kind of a radical thing, this Buddhism, to practice contentment. So be careful. Maybe do it secretly. Make sure your governments don't know about it. So uh, contented and easily supported. So easily supported uh, by your world, by, by the natural world. What does it take to have you get supported here? Um, and so, you know, it's to be contented and easily supported um, to, have it, to have less impact on the natural resources, to walk lightly in this world. Uh, how many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you drove, drove here today but you could have walked, or you could have biked, or you could have easily enough taken the train or the bus. How many took the train or the bus to get here today? One person out of a hundred. Wow. 
How many biked here today? Two people. How many, out of a hundred. How many um, walked here today? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Well, it's getting up there, walking's winning out. And the rest of you, you know, I don't know. <laughs> you had ways of getting here. Oh, some, how many people carpooled? Well, so five people or so. Great. So, um, and the rest of you, you know, uh, it's hard to carpool. You know, if you live far away, it makes sense. You can't uh, walk or you can't bike. So that makes sense. Um, but is it possible to stretch yourself? Is it possible to begin uh, 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 living in such a way that uh, you live more lightly? <coughs> so anyway, so this whole metta thing and attaining the t- state of peace, uh, these virtues are considered to be part and parcel of that approach. <coughs> um, content and easily supported, living lightly and with few duties, wise and with senses calmed, not arrogant and without greed. Then it goes on, and this one, I think, the next little part of it, I think, is very important for in terms of an environmental ethic coming from Buddhism. <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> one should reflect, may all be happy and secure. May all beings be happy at heart. All living beings, whether weak or strong, tall, large, medium, or short, tiny or big, seen or unseen, near or distant, born or to be born, may they all be happy. So this idea of all, all beings, is not just human beings. This idea that you would be concerned with the welfare and happiness of all beings, uh, I think uh, feeds directly into a Buddhist environmental ethic. So you're not just concerned about yourself and your own, but you're concerned with uh, the animals, the fish, the environment that you live in. And how can you be concerned about it? Uh, how can you do something? Some people feel um, it's too daunting and I'm just one person and what can one person do? And these are really big political and economic and industrial issues that are too big for me. Um, but uh, I'm impressed by how change happens over time, slowly. Maybe we don't have enough time to happen slowly. But I remember uh, I was growing up in Los Angeles in the late 1960s and there was a ballot measure in the county vote, the election, uh, whether people would um, be willing to separate out their trash into uh, trash and recycling. And overwhelmingly, people there voted no. <laughs> and so I don't know how many years later it took before they do recycling in Los Angeles, but that's 40, 40 years ago, 40-some years ago, that was um, where society was at. And now they don't even ask us. <laughs> there's, no, there's no vote. If you're, you're willing to separate out, they just, they just tell us. And um, you have a green bin now. And, uh, and then you've got to use it. And uh, so this, uh, things have changed over time. And, and uh, so how do things change? I think uh, they change by a society taking small steps together. And then somehow there's momentum that grows over time. I read recently of a Zen master who was told about war and the current war going on in the world. And uh, his response was that you need to have a thousand-year view. So that uh, in Japan, you know, they have a history that goes back 2,000 years easily. And uh, so a thousand-year view of uh, what, what, what it takes. I don't know if we have a thousand years, 
But I think the long-term view with the idea that small changes now can make a big difference in the future. And collective action makes a big difference. So, you know, only a few of you biked or walked here or took public transportations or carpooled. And it, just like the people in Los Angeles 40 years ago, it's like a burden. Like, why would you, why would you recycle and separate out? Now, I think for most of us, it's kind of second nature to separate out. We don't think about it much. It's not like a burden. It's like, oh, this is obviously what you do. And perhaps in uh, some years, uh, public transportation, bike, walking, and such things will become more, much more obvious and natural to do. One of the things I like, well, the other thing I like about uh, uh, calling upon Buddhism for environmental ethic, well, a couple of things. One is that uh, Buddhism didn't ever had an environmental ethic. Uh, you know, 2,000 years ago, it wasn't really a big concern the way it is now, the environment. And there was concern about taking care of animals and such things. And there were little teachings you can find. Um, one of them, it says, don't be a um, wood apple eater. <laughs> I guess that's the, that's the original translation, literal translation of the term. And what it meant was someone who came to an apple tree and shook all the trees out of the, all the apples out of the tree and then picked up a few ripe ones and walked away. And all the ones that weren't ripe yet, they're laying there to rot. So there you go. You know, just, just take what you need. You know, don't, just, don't destroy everything. So you know, some people then call upon that as for an environmental ethic in Buddhism. But, what's, uh, but I think we, you know, people, as I said, people look towards religions for environmental ethics. And I think one of the exciting things about the modern world is that there are a lot of people now trying to uh, put together a Buddhist environmental ethic, trying to call upon Buddhist teachings and all that to try to um, um, come up with something that is compelling and meaningful, inspiring. And one of the pieces of that uh, is that um, um, the idea of mu- is the idea of mutual benefit. That um, you know, if it's only a matter of sacrifice and burden, oh, we have to you know do do it less, and we have to you know walk and carpool, and we have to you know you know whatever all these you know it's all about sacrifice. Um, it's not very inspiring to people, and and. Uh, you know, unless unless people unless you know, only under duress will people really kind of start changing themselves. But um, this mutual benefit thing—that if we really understand how benefiting others benefits ourselves, benefiting environment benefits ourselves, and how benefiting ourselves uh, benefits others in the world—maybe then it's more inspiring to do it. And as symbolically to represent this, I think could be as simple as um, for your personal health is better. Most people, for most people, it's better served if you could walk or bike here. Um, you know, it's, it's you know rather than biking. Um, so you know, just you, not only and your psychological well-being. Like I walk here as much as I can, or bike here as much as I can, and um, it has a very good effect on my mind to walk here and bike here. And uh, I, I, I suspect that uh, my mind is more alert, more clear when I come here to teach after I walk than if I drive down here. I benefit from it. I feel good. I feel kind of nice energy in myself coming. And so are there ways of living lightly, living with uh, more contented, living, using less, recycling more, being less of a consumer, that rather than being a sacrifice and a burden, 
uh, brings us a greater joy and delight to you, makes your life, life feel better. Um, is there ways in which... Uh, um, so what would that look like? How would you do that? If you consumed less, would you have more time to do less? And then if you have, if you have more time to do less, <laughs> then uh, perhaps you can meditate more or perhaps you can hang out with your family more or just do nothing more. Um, we have a... Uh, and our, I don't know if it's, if how many of you it's affected, but I think we've had, we have a contagious illness in our society of over-busyness of doing too much. And uh, my impression is that the advent of cell phones, which makes life so much easier and more efficient, um, has had the opposite effect because uh, now you can be on the phone all the time and all the little gaps in the day when you, know, you don't want to do anything unimportant, you don't want to just hang out and do nothing. You, know, you, you want to call someone and take care of something. But if you call and take care of something, then you know, just... It builds up the network of people who you have to be involved in. And so are, can we return to a sim- little bit simpler life, not dramatically? Uh, can we use our, our ability to, not to sacrifice things, but to simplify uh, so that we benefit less stress? I read an article recently about how much stress affects people's uh, getting sick. And that if you want to avoid getting sick, one of the best things you can do for yourself is uh, don't be stressed. And uh, the article talked about yoga. One of the one of the things that you can do is to, is practice thirty minutes of yoga every day, and it affects it benefits your your immune system. And um, so I, I, my assumption is 30, 30 minutes of meditation does the same. You know, or thirty minutes of not being stressed is probably helpful. So the principle I'm trying to get across here is the idea that um, uh, can we look at our response to the environment not as a burden and as a strain, but we can, can we do the thinking that it takes, the planning it takes, to see that a, a healthy response individually and as a society uh, really can be done in such a way that it brings us benefit, that we thrive in the, in the wake of it. And I think if we can find how we thrive in the wake of it, then um, I think it's much more compelling that we want to do it. We want to simplify our life. We want to use less resources. We want to have more open space. We want to have more cleaner skies. We want to have cleaner water and all these things. Um, And the final thing I want to say about uh, Buddhist environmental ethic is... um, there is a, a strong tendency in Buddhism to, ha- to, in fact, have a great appreciation of the natural world. Uh, the natural world is seen as the incubator for enlightenment, the incubator, the support, uh, the greenhouse for practicing. There's a, you know, the story of the Buddha, he meditated under a tree. He died under a tree. He was born under a tree. It kind of points to the role that nature has in supporting the growth of Buddhism. When the Buddha was searching for a place to, for the Bodhi tree, searching for a place to go sit and meditate uh, for his quest for awakening, um, he says this, um, searching uh, for, uh, searching or seeking uh, the state of peace I wondered, I wondered about 
until eventually I arrived uh, at uh, this particular river. There I saw a delightful spot, a pleasant forest grove, and a clear flowing river with fine smooth banks, and a nearby village for alms. I considered, I, I considered surely this is a place fit for a person intent on peace, on practice. So kind of a little bit, slightly idyllic kind of description of a place. He found this beautiful place, and that's where the Buddha practiced. And, um, and with the idea that there's something nourishing about the natural world and how it supports our lives. And here's another poem by a disciple of the Buddha uh, who wrote, Alone and in the woods, with no one else around, life becomes exquisite. Off I go then to lead the forest life that the Buddha praised. I will taste the welfare that he knows, the Buddha knows. Intent on my welfare, I will go to the woods that I love, to the haunt of elephants, to the source of a yogi's joy. In the flowery glades of cool woods, I will roam in ample solitude. And when hot and tired, I will bathe in the refreshing pools in the hollows of the hills. I will make my mind strong enter the woods and not come out until I have destroyed what poisons my heart. I will sit on a mountaintop and while the wind blows, cool and fragrant on my brow, brow, I will burst the mists of ignorance. Then on the carpets of flowers, in that wood and in that cool cliff caves, and blessed with the joy of freedom, I will take my ease. So to expand this kind of idea to our whole society, I think our society benefits uh, from having a natural environment to go and spend time in. And so it needs to be preserved. It needs to be saved. It needs to be... Um, so organizations like the Nature Conservancy, which have preserved uh, millions and millions of acres around the world, are really important. Here on the peninsula, we have the, nature, we have the Mid-Peninsula Open Space District which has done fantastic work in preserving uh, uh, these open space preserves. I lived on one for a while. We rented from the open space district right up here on uh, Skyline. We lived in a converted barn that they converted. And, uh, and so uh, on the, what's, what's called the Corte Madeira uh, Preserve. And uh, after we lived there for a while, we learned that uh, uh, just before the Nature Conservancy brought that property, uh, uh, there was a plans, and there was still the evidence of it in terms of some of the graded roads, that it was going to become a huge housing development and um, <coughs> up there in the mountains. And so, and now it's a beautiful forested place, it's a beautiful place to go hiking. So uh, there are people, organizations that have done fantastic work preserving the environment for us, and uh, there's much more to be done. Um, I think that uh, the oceans are one of the also big next things. We don't see what's under the ocean very much, but uh, you know our whole kind of ecology is so dependent on what goes on in the oceans. And beautiful place. And so, um, how do we preserve our environment? How do we change the direction or slow down the direction that we're going and with the environment? 
So one of the things that I have not done in this talk, um, I see if I can avoid it. <laughs> uh, I, I haven't uh, talked about. Um, well, you know, maybe I don't be silly and avoid talking about it entirely. I haven't talked about climate change. I haven't used that term. You know, that's kind of the hot buzz thing, climate change. And I think it's a very important topic. But the reason I didn't want to talk about it is that um, even before it bec- climate change becomes such a hot topic, um, there were lots of other reasons to be concerned about our environment and take care of our environment. Taking care of the environment is not only dependent on climate change. Uh, and in this controversy, is there climate change? How much uh, hum- have humans affected climate change? I think it's a, it can be a, sm- a smokescreen to help to avoid really understanding how th- the deep ecology, the deep uh, role that our environment has that uh, was already an issue 40 years ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, that um, there was ample reasons to live a life of goodwill, of kindness, of simplicity, of caring for a natural environment, of uh, overcoming the forces of greed, individual greed, corporate greed, overcoming the forces of hostility, individual hostility and, and societal hostility as we go to war to each other, and overcome the forces of delusion where we don't really pay attention to what's going on. So uh, I think that, um, uh, I hope that the Buddhist practice of waking up, the Buddhist practice of paying careful attention, is in fact a process that helps us to become free of the psychological crisis we're in. And as we do that, it helps us become people who can better address um, the ecological crisis that we all share in. So that's my offering for Earth Care Week. I hope that this week that you think about the care of the earth. Um, and um, even though one week a year is probably not enough, uh, it's a really good beginning. And uh, you might uh, see, what, what can, if, you, if you keep that in the forefront of your mind this week, what can you do for the sake of the earth, for the ecology? And uh, Even as simple as walking to the store rather than driving. Uh, can you make us a week of caring for the environment? And can you do it in such a way that it nourishes you, that you benefit as a result? Because then you probably want to continue. But if it's just a drag, I don't think there's, there's going to be much hope. May you all be nourished. Thank you.